1: Welcome to the Latin American History Podcast, Episode 32, Tierra Fermi, Part 3. When we left him, Balboa had just discovered the Pacific Ocean, and was rushing back to his colony as news had reached him that a ship had arrived from Spain. He had no idea what had been happening in Spain and the rest of the empire, and his position as governor of his colony was tenuous. When he got there, he discovered that Ferdinand had sent an inspector, and had the intention of sending a new governor for the colony. He had a man lined up, but before he sent him, he wanted his inspector to have a look and assess what state the colony was in. If this had happened a few months earlier, this probably would have been the end of Balboa's adventures in Panama. It looks like he would have been safe from punishment but he would not have been able to resist the king's desire to recall him. Now, however, he might have a shot at retaining his position, thanks to the things he had literally just achieved. He had discovered the Pacific Ocean, he had a reasonable amount of gold and pearls to send back, and he had a long list of native allies who would be useful for the king's future ambitions, some of whom had been converted to Christianity. Surely this proved his worth. He could not, of course, plead his case to the king directly, but he did so to the inspector and managed to win him over. He provided the inspector with reports of his explorations, and the man left promising to paint a favourable picture of Balboa when he reached Madrid. Balboa watched him go, and began the long wait for more news. Despite the uncertainty, the colony was now well established. The inspector had brought with him new men and supplies, and the population was now over 500. The new supplies were certainly helpful, but Santa Maria was well on the way to becoming self-sufficient. It had 200 houses, a church and a hospital. Thanks mainly to the slaves they had taken, and the agreement reached with the Cacique Chima of Coreta to have his men work the land for the Spanish, They were able to produce the food required to feed the colony, and there were around 1,500 indigenous people doing the hard work. Balboa's position was also pretty secure internally. Although there were always ambitious men looking to do what he had done and take power for themselves, none of them wanted an outsider from Spain or Hispaniola to take over. Newcomers would mean more people to share any future spoils with, and who knew what the new governor would be like. The colonists had been busy building relationships with each other, and a political network had developed. While many would have been making plans to rise up the ranks of this hierarchy, a new administration could completely change these networks, and force people to start again. Balboa had proved himself to be an able governor, who could make their colony prosper. While some would have thought that they could do a better job, and would happily try to jump into his position if the opportunity arose, this was the only circumstance in which they would have advocated his replacement, it seems. Balboa, however, had not quite done enough to convince Ferdinand. And Cisó was still in Madrid, and perhaps his constant denunciations of Balboa had slowly had an effect. He was certainly in the king's good books, as he would be sent back to the colony with the new ruler. The man chosen to take over the governorship was a man of many names. Officially, he was Pedro Arias de Avila, sometimes shortened to Davila. He was also sometimes called Pedrarias, a blending of his two first names, and during his youth he earned the nicknames the Jouster, the Gallant and the Lion of Berghia. These names give us an insight into his character and life story. He was said to be a good fighter and horse rider, hence the Jouster. He also liked to dress in fine clothes, hence the Gallant, and he fought well in North Africa earlier in his career, hence the Lion nickname. For simplicity, I will just refer to him as Davila from now on. He was born into a rich and well-connected family, although apparently his grandfather may have been a humble Jewish spice merchant, married to a barmaid, who achieved great wealth and earned his descendants their social standing. Despite the rigid class system at the time, and the prejudice against Jews, if true, this family history had not held him back. Davila was a page to the King of Castile, Juan II, as a child, and was later given permission to marry one of Queen Isabella's closest friends, a woman named Isabel. Isabel was actually the daughter of Bobadilla, the man who had replaced Columbus as governor of Hispaniola, so this marriage further added to Davila's web of connections. He was said to be physically imposing, have green eyes and red hair. By this point, however, His best years physically were behind him. He was around 70 when he departed for Santa Maria. While he was given the commission, Ferdinand did seem to have some reservations about him, and his position came with some caveats which other colonial governors did not have to observe. He was not allowed to appoint his own mayor of Santa Maria, and three royal officials were sent with him who were able to limit his power if they saw the need to. It was Inciso who was chosen to return as the colony's mayor. Davila's appointment was part of a larger scheme by King Ferdinand to turn the colony into a powerhouse. He now knew that the difficult first beginnings had been overcome, and that this place was not a lost cause. It had the potential to become a new Hispaniola. He wanted to thank Balboa for achieving this, but respectfully asked him to step aside as the Spanish crown was going to put its full attention into the next stage of development and integrate its government into the larger empire. Nineteen ships were to go to Santa Maria, with 1,500 men on board. They brought with them 375,000 pounds of flour, 300,000 pounds of biscuits, and 69,000 gallons of oil and wine. There were weapons, tools, seeds, tents and spare anchors, 50 beds for the hospital, and large bells for the grand cathedral that was to be built. There was a debate about whether to bring 1,000 hammocks over from Spain. I don't know if they were brought or not, but this is probably most interesting because, as the hammock was indigenous to the Caribbean, this suggests that it had been adopted by the Spanish, and that they were now being made in Europe. Thousands of people had put their name down to join the colony, and a great deal of time and effort had been put into narrowing the candidates down to a reasonable number. Only so many ships could be sent. Apparently, the city of Sevilla, where the preparations were being made, had been invaded by people who had turned up uninvited, hoping to get a place on the boats. This was the largest armada sent to the New World to date. The territory of the colony would be formalised, stretching from the Colombian coast to today's Nicaragua. As Viragua, the name which had been used to refer to the colony as a whole, a small part of the existing colony, and an undefined indigenous territory somewhere in the area, would now only be part of the government's territory, a new name was given to it. Castilla de Oro, Castle of Gold. The name was chosen because Ferdinand had, as always, been led to believe that huge amounts of the precious metal would be found there. Here, despite their differences, Balboa's and Enciso's interests aligned, because even though they wanted different things for the colony, they both wanted it to look like a promising venture. Both had been feeding the king this line. The fleet had a rough start. Hardly leaving the coast before a storm forced them to turn back and wait a few days. From there, however, it was smooth sailing, with stops at the Canary Islands, the uncolonized island of Dominica, which Davila claimed for Spain, and Santa Marta on the coast of Colombia. Here they spent a few days, and had some minor skirmishes with the indigenous people. Some wanted to found a new settlement there, but Davila was against it. As they neared Balboa's settlement, A ship was sent ahead to tell him of their arrival, and that Davila would be coming to take up the governorship. The messenger found Balboa in workman's clothes, supervising the laying of a roof. He was said to have been surprised to find him this way, and not ensconced in his villa dressed in fine clothes. Balboa also surprised him with his reaction. The messenger would have come out of the blue with bad news, but Balboa took it gracefully, and said he would be happy to welcome Davila. The two met the next day in a clearing near to the harbour. Davila and his men were dressed in their fine clothes, with all the trappings of nobility. Balboa, and the colonists by contrast, looked as you might expect of a ragged group of men who had spent years out in the wilderness. Yet it was Balboa who was said to have appeared the more noble in some ways. He was confident, friendly and in good shape thanks to the sun and the hard work of building the colony. Davila, by contrast, was old, infirm, and tired from the long journey. Balboa charmed them, as he always did, and he showed no signs of being unhappy with the new arrangements. While this made Davila's job much easier, he probably formed an instant dislike of Balboa. In some ways, his confidence and grace was much more threatening than resistance. This was clearly a capable man, and behind his welcome, there was the potential for future problems. With so many men and the king behind them, Balboa had no hope of resisting the new colonists. But, by embarking on a charm offensive, he could win friends and keep himself in a prominent position within the colony. This could be a potential launch pad for future ambitions. Davila would have to watch him. That very same day, Davila and Balboa had a private meeting to exchange information about the King's orders for the colony and its current condition. Davila decided to go for the same tactic as Balboa. On the surface, both were happy with the new situation and they were establishing an excellent working relationship. Internally, Davila was considering future options. One of Davila's first decisions was to found new settlements. There were way too many men there now for Santa Maria to support, and settling more land was the natural next step in the growth of the colony. It seems that he had opted to try and sideline Balboa, and as part of his plan he ordered settlements to be made in the direction of the Pacific. He wanted to take some of the prestige out of Balboa's discovery. Sure, Balboa had been the first to go over there, but it would be Davila, who hopefully would be known for integrating it into the Spanish Empire. His plans for the colony were soon interrupted though, and the settlements were not founded. In fact, the beginning of his rule was a complete and total disaster. First came an outbreak of some sort of epidemic. This killed many men. Apparently corruption took hold in the distribution of food that had been brought over as well, so despite there being plenty to begin with, many people could not afford to purchase it. Plenty of people died of avoidable hunger. Then there was the usual deaths caused by tropical diseases, unrelated to the main epidemic. By the time the sickness had passed, these three things had killed over 700 people. Many more had given up and decided to try to go back to Spain whenever a ship arrived. More than half of the colony's population was gone. To add to this, heavy-handed dealings with the indigenous population had started to undo all of Balboa's diplomatic work. It was said that the locals used to wander in and out of the settlement, but now, the only way to get them there was in chains. Davila started mounting slaving raids... You can forget the name of all the caciques we've already met. They will play no further part in the story, as they were all dead. Balboa had turned most of the surrounding caciques into friends. Now, they were becoming enemies. This had all happened within the space of five months. We don't know what Balboa's thoughts and motivations were. He may have truly been happy to accept the new order of things when Davila first arrived. Circumstances changed dramatically, however, and would force things in a different direction. He had been successfully sidelined, and found himself without any influence. That said, he still had a sizeable following, and this was of course bolstered by Davila's terrible governing. Davila felt threatened, and attempted to lay criminal charges against Balboa for the events with Nequesa and Ojeda. One of the king's conditions of his governorship, however, was that the judicial system of the colony was to be completely independent, and he was unable to influence it for his own purposes. Because of this, despite repeated attempts, he was unable to make anything stick on Balboa. And Cizo also had an axe to grind, and he mounted numerous legal challenges to Balboa. These were also largely unsuccessful. To begin with, Davila's attempts against Balboa were done through others, and he played a political game, pretending to act as an advocate for Balboa, while secretly plotting his demise. Eventually, however, the masks slipped, and the relationship turned into one of open hostility. Whatever Balboa's initial intentions, whether he too had been playing a game or not, he now had no choice but to be Davila's enemy. Balboa was in a difficult position, but Davila's wasn't great either. Word had got back to the king about how badly things were going. In fact, after six months, Davila himself was required to report back on the colony's progress. He tried his best, but there was no way he could put a positive spin on things. Balboa was also sending letters to Spain, outlining what was going on. Despite this, the corruption of Davila's government only seemed to be growing. What we would call good governance was a rarity in those times but the sheer determination of the rulers to siphon off everything they could at the expense of everyone else is astounding. It wasn't just the colonists they were conning. They were still drawing the salaries from Spain of the government workers who had died from illness. More attempts at settlements were made in Panama and Colombia, which were brutal in their treatment of the indigenous, even by the standards of the time. They were also all unsuccessful, and I wish that I could go into them here, but this story is already bigger than I had planned. Suffice to say, they all followed the same basic formula of massacring and looting. Davila would surely have been replaced if King Ferdinand hadn't fallen ill. He would die a couple of years later, but in the meantime, he was not in a fit state to make serious decisions about the colony. Luckily for Davila, Things started to settle down in the beginning of 1515. The state of the colony was not good, but people were no longer dying and leaving in their drones. He started to consolidate his position, but this was hampered by word from Spain. While Ferdinand was unable to give the colony proper attention, having reviewed Balboa's track record compared to that of Davila's, he had decided to give Balboa a governorship. Not Davila's one but a new one on the South Sea that he had discovered. He would be free to go and found a new sub-colony there, but it would still be part of Davila's Castillo de Oro. The wording of the message gave Balboa a good amount of autonomy, but he would still be subordinate to Davila. Davila got the news first, and conspired to hide it from Balboa. The information was leaked, however, so Davila was forced to let Balboa launch his new expedition. He did, however, make it as difficult as possible and refused to provide the support that the king had ordered him to. Balboa started to make preparations. We will see how he fared next time. You've been listening to the Latin American History Podcast, written and recorded by Max Sargent. For more information, visit the website www.maxsargent.com/slash the history of Latin America. And that's spelt M-A-X-S-E-R-J-E-A-M-T. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to get in contact at historyoflatinamericapodcast at gmail.com. You can also find the Facebook page by searching for The Latin American History Podcast. The Twitter handle is at historylatinam and if you've liked the show, you can help out by leaving a review on iTunes. Alternatively, if you visit the website, you'll see that each episode is accompanied by relevant photos. Most of these are my own, taken during my time in Latin America. All these photos and more are available to purchase as prints at my Etsy shop. You can find this at www.etsy.com slash photo. That's spelt www.etsy.com slash max m-a-x-s-e-r-j-e-a-n-t photo thanks for listening